Father, we echo the words of the song we just sung that you would be our vision. You indeed are our vision. In those you have given the gift of life in Christ, you have regenerated our hearts. But we pray evermore that that vision and that longing would increase within us. And more and more we would decrease and Christ you would increase in our affection, in our thoughts, in the direction of our lives. Produce that in us, Holy Spirit. And produce that in us by giving us a clearer and clearer understanding of the truth and the glories of who you are, who we are, what you've done in Christ, what you're doing and what you will do. And as you expose these things to us, help us to grow in our affection and our love for you, delighting in what you have done for us you have redeemed. And Lord, for any who are outside of you who hear this, we we pray that they would not be outside, but by your grace you would give them life to see and respond in faith and repentance to the truth of Christ and of the gospel. Him who is gentle and humble in heart and turns none away, who come in sincerity and truth. So to that end, we pray, our God, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is where we find ourselves again this morning. And uh, we'll find ourselves for the next uh, several weeks, uh, although we are going to pick up and move through, but we're spending a little bit of extra time on this uh, first part of this new section in the book of Revelation, this beginning of the unfolding of the judgments of God and beginning with the breaking of the seals, because there are some fundamental issues to deal with uh, in this uh, passage. So we are this morning going to pick up where we left off uh, last week. Uh, this week we're going to uh, fill out, uh, up through verse 2, this first rider, this first horse, and come to an identity of him. And then next week we're going to pull the car over for, again, just for one week, and look at the Old Testament passage of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, which is crucial to understanding these uh, opening verses. And uh, there we'll understand the Old Testament background that helps us frame our knowledge of not only these verses, but really all of Revelation and the end times. So we'll do that next week. And as we noted, as we come into this section, the overall emphasis, uh, really through all of Scripture, but one overall emphasis particularly so uh, here in the book of Revelation is the reminder, one, that God is on His throne, God is sovereignly ruling over the nations, God will accomplish His purposes, whatever strength evil seems to have, however much evil might be, uh, seem to be on the rise, no matter how much persecution comes to God's people, He is yet on His throne, He will vindicate his name and in vindicating his name he will vindicate his people and he will uphold righteousness and justice on the earth for his everlasting glory and that is what scripture reminds us and that is particularly what the end of all things reminds us is that the things to come as horrible as they are among men they are the execution of a righteous plan that will end ultimately in the good of the glory of Christ and of the blessing of his people and the fulfillment of all of his promises. In other words, we could just say this, things are not out of control. God is sovereign over evil and God is sovereign over good and he uses both to accomplish his purposes. But in the end, everything that God does is good and it will end with what is the highest and the greatest good and that is that God might be all in all. And so Revelation brings us to consider these things in a unique and in a dramatic way. And here, particularly with the unfolding of the judgments that are to come upon the world at the end of the age, that are to wrap up God's purposes uh, for this present age. Let me read for you, I won't read all of chapter 6 this time, but let me read for you beginning in verse 1 down to verse 8. Uh, this is the account of the first four seals and the unleashing of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're often known. And then we'll swing back around and pick it up back in verse 1 and 2. So beginning in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. 
When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And another a red horse went out, and him, to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. And so begins the unleashing of the wrath of God in the final days of this present age. And as we noted last time, in the opening of these seals, Christ, who is the only worthy one in heaven to have that right to open these seals, and he does so as the Son of God eternal and the Son of Man, the incarnate Son of God, who is by his nature as God, but also by his success as the Messiah, the sinless Messiah, in overcoming death and purchasing for himself a people and a kingdom. He alone has the worthiness and the right to open these seals in all of heaven and earth. And we noted as well that he does so in his role as king and as judge, as divine king and divine judge. He is the only true king and ruler of the universe, and all judgment, as we noted, has been given to him. So he does this with divine authority and with divine glory, and he is coming to establish his kingdom. We noted as well that the first four seals call forth four horses and four horsemen who find their imagery, the the picture of these uh, four uh, agents of God's will, in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. We are introduced to them in the chapter one of Zechariah, but particularly in chapter six of Zechariah. And there again, we are met with four horses, not so much a horse and a horseman, but four horses, later four horses and horses pulling chariots of various colors. And so that forms in the thought of John here in Revelation, a background. And there was an understanding that God was sovereign over the nations and that he was going to accomplish his will for his people who at that time were in captivity. It was a reminder that he is a ruler over the nations and he will bring forth his promises to them and the bringing forth of those promises to his people involved not only his judgment on them for their sin but ultimately his judgment on the nations and the restoration of his covenant people of God Israel and with that as a background there is the connection in this in the the vision that John is seeing here that God is the one who is sovereign over the nations and though his people are persecuted he will ultimately bring about their redemption and the fullness of the salvation that was promised to them in other words God is sovereign over all of the earth that that again is the main theme here and we noted as well that though the imagery connects to Zechariah that the content is filled out for us, particularly by Christ himself, when he's answering the question of the disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13 and Luke chapter 21, explaining to them in answer to their question, when will these things be the signs of the end of the age? And we noted there as well, there is an exact correspondence between the unleashing of these four horsemen and the first part of the signs of the end of the age related to conquering and war, to disease and to death and so forth. And so here we now come in to the particulars of the unfolding of this great and terrible day. And let's note first in verse 1 then, consider this first seal. Verse 1 says, And when I saw the Lamb, He broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come, come. 
The summons of the first horse by the first of the four living creatures who, if you will remember, back in chapter 4, were introduced to us as divine and angelic beings that were before the throne of God. And we'll come across them again a few other times in the book of Revelation. Here it is the first living creature, which is described in verse 7 of chapter 4, of having the face as a lion, having the face of a lion, which speaks of strength, of fierceness, of dignity, of power. And here he is the one assigned to call forth the events related to the unbreaking of the first seal. And it says that he spoke with a voice of thunder. A voice of thunder. This is a majestic scene. This is meant to give a sense of the awesomeness and the weight of the events that are to come. We will see often, even as we had in the Old Testament, you can think of Mount Sinai, the thundering and the lightning and the the presence of God that surrounded uh, the mountain as he gave the commandments to his people. And he said that he came with such majesty and display of majesty that they would fear him and not sin. And that was exactly meant to be the impression that they were to see the majesty of God and to fear him. And so we see throughout the book of Revelation this idea of thunder conjured up in different scenes. It's the the sound before the throne in Revelation 4-5. Again, when John sees the vision of the 24 elders and the sea of glass and the lightnings and the thunder and all of this surrounding him who sits upon the throne, a scene of great glory. It's the sound of the great multitude in Revelation 19.6 as they're waiting and anticipating the return of Christ in his final act of judgment when he returns to establish his kingdom. It says he heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And again, we're met with that imagery again and again in Revelation. Here, the angelic voice that is described here as sounding like thunder, marks the majesty and the authority of the divine presence. It marks a sense of awesomeness. And here, through the living creature, who is giving a command under the authority of God, and so the authority of God through this living creature, the majesty of God's presence and His purposes, through this messenger who is symbolically calling forth the first rider, is meant to impress upon John and the readers the great weight and gravity of the things that are to come. And so he speaks with a voice of thunder and he says, Come. Now a quick note here on this command, just briefly. Some early manuscript evidence has the words come and see. So if you have a King James Bible, it actually might say come and see. I doubt any of you have the Geneva Bible, (laughs) although we could go back that far, or the Tyndale Bible. But many of the early translations have the words come and see. And and the idea there is that the the command is given uh, to John for John to come and see these events. But that's not the best... uh, Manuscript evidence really has just the simple come as a lot of modern translations uh, have. And the command is given not to John to come and see, but the command is clearly coming from the angelic creature calling forth and summoning the first of God's judgment. That is not only by manuscript evidence, but context itself. Each one of the creatures with this command in their mouth brings forth and summons a particular horse and its rider. And so that is the focus here. He is calling forth the first horse and rider to execute the will of God. And he calls forth, he says in verse 2, as he comes forth, John looked and John beheld a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. It's a scene here of military might and victory. There is a white horse. A horse is a military animal. It is meant as a, it is a beast of war. A bow is an instrument of war. He's given a crown and he's fulfilling the task of conquering. Here is military strength and conquest. The imagery of the bow, we won't go through out there, but it's common throughout the Old Testament. And it speaks of, of military might, of skill, of, of destruction even. Hosea 1.5, on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. In other words, I'll break their military strength. It will stand as nothing before God when he executes his judgment. The simple idea there is to note that this is speaking of an army and of military victory. 
The crown is that of the victor's wreath, and it symbolizes the success of his campaign. Again, he went out conquering and to conquer. The crown that he wears is that which is given to the overcomer. Interestingly, it's the wreath crown, which is also given to those who overcome in Christ. It's a crown that Christ himself wears as well. It's also a crown of gold that the demonic hosts are said to wear in Revelation 9-7. The overall idea of this crown is that it acknowledges and represents victory and success. Victory and success. The color white, we're familiar with in Revelation. It's also uh, often associated with purity, with righteousness, with holiness. Christ, if you'll remember in the vision in chapter 1, has head and hair white like wool. You remember the 24 elders are clothed in white garments. Those who overcome in Revelation chapter 3 are going to be clothed in white and walk with Christ in white. The Son of Man is going to come on a white cloud we could go through. It's a picture of then, this opening picture of conquering army or armies going forth with great success and supposedly in the cause of what is good and righteous. Now that then begs the question, how are we to understand this? What does it refer to? What does it refer to? Well, we're not going to get too much in the weeds here, but let me give you an overview of some of the ways it's understood and then the way that, uh, that we present it and understand it. First of all, there are those who interpret this almost entirely or entirely in light of historical events, in light of historical events, in light of historical events that have happened and historical events that are to take place. Let me just give you a couple of the main ones of those. One says that this is an early period of peace within the Roman Empire in its imperial expansion. They would list five capable Roman emperors that spanned from 96 AD to 180 AD in which there was this movement out of the Roman Empire, of Roman imperialism, and it produced a kind of general peace in the known world at that time. And they'd say, well, it refers to that. Others say that it refers primarily to Rome's fear of a Parthian invasion, is a nation that was on the eastern border of Rome. Not only their fear, but some actual historical events in which Rome experienced defeat at the hand of these capable warriors. And that's seen primarily because of the instrument that the writer, uh, the war instrument that he's carrying, and that is a bow. The Parthian army was known for its success with the bow. The riders were experts at riding horses, charging into battle while carrying a bow and shooting them effectively towards the enemy and with great success. In fact, Rome was defeated by this particular uh, military might uh, in 53 B.C., 36 B.C., and 62 A.D. They experienced defeat on their eastern border. And so some say this is what it is picturing. However, there are several problems with this. Let me just mention a couple. And these will relate to other things as well. The imagery of bow, while certainly true of the Parthian army, wasn't unique to them. There were others, nations who were also skilled uh, with the bow. And a matter of fact, they were also well known for the use of lances as well as bows. It also requires a very early dating of Revelation, which we've already covered in the opening, is to be dated around in the late 1st century A.D., in the 90s A.D., so Referring to events uh, before that would be, um, would be not likely. And third, the Parthian king, one has noted, was on generally good relations with Rome, even though they did have those conflicts. And there was even a uh, gift sent to the emperor Nero by the brother of one of the Parthian kings. And there was a relative good relationships overall between them uh, in the big picture. And in fact, when Rome quelled the Jewish rebellion in 70 AD and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, there was a gift sent by a Parthian king to uh, the emperor at the time celebrating with it. So this, it's not likely that that's what it is. Now, others in this camp say that it's events leading up to the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 A.D., and the first horseman then would represent the initial advance of the gospel. However, it's an odd way to refer to the advance of the gospel with conquering and with a bow and with war. And plus, there is a unified picture in each of the four horsemen here of the judgment of God, and we, are, we shouldn't separate them out. 
And again, of course, there is the early dating issue. There's another set of interpreters that see this as representing Christ and or the future advance of the gospel. The future advance of the gospel. Now, this identification of the writer here with Christ has a long history, beginning with Irenaeus in the second century. And it was, in fact, largely the dominant understanding of this passage throughout much of the early church that it was seen here as Christ. And the argument rests largely, not exclusively, but largely on the return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And you'll remember there we have this great and this glorious picture of Christ coming. It says in verse 11 that the heavens were opened and John saw, Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And so there's war, there's a white horse, there is the command of, uh, or the sense of fulfilling the will of God in heaven. It further goes on, describes his eyes as flame as fire. On his head are many diadems. His robe dipped in blood, his name is called the Word of God, and he's followed with an army dressed in fine linen, and so forth. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. And so the, those who take this as Christ say that is an unmistakable connection. We have a warrior, we have conquering, we have victory, we have a white horse, we have Christ, who is here seen first, going out and conquering for good through the gospel. However, again, there are several difficulties with this. Let me give you two categories. One is the imagery itself. Outside of the white horse, there really is no connection between the imagery of what John sees in Revelation 19 and what is presented here of this white horse in chapter 2 of Revelation 6. There, Christ is returning with the saints and with the holy angels and with a sword from his mouth, not a bow. There, Christ is clothed in a robe stained with blood and he has his head crowned with many diadems, which is a different term than what is the crown here in this passage. So there really isn't much connection in the imagery outside of the white horse. And then there's the mechanics of the imagery. Here the lamb is pictured as opening the seals that summon horse and rider, which would be odd if he were also the rider. And as I already noted, there's no reason to separate this first imagery and symbolism from the reality of judgment, which are very clearly the mission of the latter three horses. So this is a comprehensive picture of judgment beginning with the white horse and ending with the last horse, the ashen horse. So... It is highly unlikely that this is a picture of Christ. Still others see this as a proclamation then of the gospel and attach it to Christ's statement recorded in Matthew 24, 14. And if you'll remember, in Matthew 24, 14 is where Jesus is anticipating the end times. And he says there at the end of that section that the gospel will be preached to all of the nations. He says the same thing in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, a parallel passage. But he says in Matthew 24, 14, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so some see this then as the fulfillment of that, that this is the gospel going forth. Now it is true that God will not leave himself without witness even during the events of his judgment. As a matter of fact, as we get to the fifth seal, you'll see in verse 9 of chapter 6 that he sees under the altar the souls of that have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So clearly God has a testimony to his name and to the gospel even during the period of the most intense judgments that are to come. And that is true. And even in the more severe judgments to come later, in chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So God does have a witness for himself. Even in the most intense and intensifying judgments, even during the kingdom of the Antichrist, even during the rise of the abomination of desolation and the false prophet, even during the time of the great city of Babylon, God did not leave himself and will not leave himself without witness. So that is true. However, the idea of Christ conquering through the gospel makes little sense of the following three horsemen and the reaction of the unbelieving. 
It makes little sense in the unfolding of the judgment of God for there to be a conquering and an overwhelming conquering and victory and success of the gospel followed by three accounts of great devastation of war and the consequences of war. It simply doesn't fit the picture here of the success of the gospel. Furthermore, as already noted, it's best to see the horsemen as a group, again, all executing the judgment of God, all executing God's will for the end of this age. And so there's no reason to separate that first rider. It just is incongruous with the rest of the, the imagery here. So then, that being said, if this is not the victory of the Parthian army, if it's not Christ or the advancement of the gospel, what then does the imagery mean and how are we to understand it? Well, let me suggest to you there's two possible ways to take this. Uh, they're related to one another, but uh, distinct. That as noted earlier here, there is, this is an account of the unfolding of the judgment of God. This is the unfolding of the seals that are unleashing the wrath of God upon the earth. It is best here then to identify the horse and the rider as representing the advancement of the evil kingdom of the Antichrist. Advancing the evil kingdom of the Antichrist. Let's consider this a bit more. Now, what I said too is in this way. One, see this in a personal sense. Like this is a personal representation of the Antichrist himself. And the imagery then would be that of the beginning of his kingdom with him at the head, seeking to present himself as a Christ-like figure, a false Christ, as God's anointed ruler, as one who is appointed by God, empowered by God, and doing God's work. And that he is now gaining ascendancy in his deception. As noted earlier, what is universally understood is that the whiteness of the horse here, particularly in the context of Revelation, and even in its picture uh, within history and invading and successful armies, is meant to be an idea that whatever conquering is happening, it's happening for good reasons. It's the advancement of peace and the advancement of righteousness. A second way, though, to see this is not as a personal identification of the Antichrist himself as the singular rider going forth, but an impersonal presentation of military conquest under false pretenses of which he, the Antichrist, is likely to uh, have ascended to what, to what eventually would be a supreme power over the other nations and over the other ones. I think this is the best way to see it, and it's consistent with the other three riders consistent in this way, one is that it's a means of judgment, but also that each of the other three writers are not to be seen so much as a personal individual as far as symbolic and representing of things that God is going to accomplish through the agency of men and through his rule over creation. I think one captured this best, one commentator, his name is Thomas, last name, uh, he, hears, he says, to identify him as the world ruler himself is not quite accurate. This writer, like the other three, is not an individual, but a personification of a growing movement or force that will be at work during this future period. The beast out of the sea, referencing Revelation 13, will be a part of this movement and on his way to the top. But at the time represented by the first seal, he will not have risen to the preeminent one of the movement. And I would agree with that. This is then a picture of wicked rulers with military strength bound together in a common mission of gaining victory and of conquering other peoples who are doing so under the pretense of peace, but their intentions are deceit and destruction. And among this group is the individual who will later rise and be identified as the Antichrist, and it is in this context that he is on that ascendancy. He is ascending. 
And this fits actually with the description of Jesus in Matthew 24 in the early period of his coming judgment in which he explained to his disciples, we noted this last week, verse 24, verses 4 through 5, see to it that no one misleads you for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will mislead many. So there are many here at first who are subject to the spirit of Antichrist which is already in the world And who are deceiving by claiming to be workers for good and even workers for God when in fact it is quite the opposite. So it appears to be a cohort, as it were, of rulers who claim to be acting as God's anointed workers, called and enabled by Him, called by God and given by God authority and a kingdom. And this isn't so different than world history. It's... You could identify many rulers throughout the history of the world. The one that would be most common to us and not too far from our lifetime would be, of course, Hitler. Hitler claimed, you remember, and part of the reason he got other nations to acquiesce, most famously Chamberlain in England, peace in our times. He went with a a meeting of world rulers in which he claimed to be exercising peace and wanting only peace and only wanting what was good for the German citizens in a reasonable way and really good for all of Europe. He was a champion in that sense. And so he was given great trust. He was given authority. And yet, his intentions all along were quite evil. And they were meant to destroy, ultimately. They were hidden under a face of peace. So we're not unfamiliar with this kind of kingdom. He claimed to be bringing in this glorious kingdom himself. That's why it was the Third Reich, the Third Kingdom. Notice here as well that it says, He was a white horse, he who sat on it, had a bow, and a crown was given to him. Again, this is a victor's crown. Who is the giver here? It's important to note briefly. Is some understand this as either as Satan or God. In support of Satan, it could be. It could be that Satan is the one here giving this to him. Jesus acknowledged that Satan is but the kingdoms of the world belong to Satan. The New Testament acknowledges that he's the God of this world and, and the ruler of this world and so forth. He acknowledged and did not argue, Jesus did, that Satan, when he said that he could, he being Satan, could give them to whoever he wishes in Luke chapter 4, 6, that that was a true statement. And later in Revelation 13, we'll see that the dragon is the one who gives his authority in verse 2, his authority and power and throne to this leader who will accomplish his purposes, the Antichrist. So it is possible to see here that this is a satanic empowering this is, a, this is a passive verb, was given to him, so it's, it's a means of then identifying the subject, who is the giver. It is possible that it is Satan empowering him to rule and to deceive these leaders. However, I think it's best here to see the giver as God. It's God who is giving this authority to act and to accomplish his will. This is, in fact, consistent with the rest of the vision. We read it earlier. In chapter 4, it was the red horse, and it was granted to him or given to him to take peace from the earth. In verse 8, there was the ashen horse, and authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. Well, Satan isn't going to limit his power. Over a fourth of the earth is determining God's boundaries of the destruction that he's allowed to bring. This is God-giving. The same thing is going to be in the kingdom of the Antichrist. You do have the dragon giving authority, but authority itself that was given to Satan to act in this way. And you see this as well in the kingdom of the Antichrist in verse 5. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Well, who's going to limit him to 42 months? Satan? The demonic realm? No, this is God. God has ordained this. God is unrevealing his judgments. God is the one who gave him the power to act. God is the one, if you'll remember, what is his answer to those who are crying before the altar? Hold on, be patient, because you have more that are to die. That is a part of the sovereign will of God. That evil is to rise, his people are to die, and that is accomplishing his purpose. It's God who ordained that. And you could go throughout that as well. Other examples. 
So God is here then calling forth this, right horse, this white horse, this rider, symbolizing the victory that is to come, that is in fact to be responsible as well for the death of his people and ultimately will be to the destruction of many of his people. It's God working out his plan and it says it was given to him to what, as already noted, conquering and to conquer he went out. Again, this language picks up on the encouragement Christ gave to his churches that those who are faithful, the overcomers, it's the same word. It's the overcomers, Christ overcame, those in Christ will overcome in Christ. Here, that same language is now being applied to this deceptive ruler who's going to go out and gain victories. As a note here, uh, the fact that the bow is mentioned, which is clearly a, a picture and representative of military strength and war, but not the use of arrows, is sometimes seen as an indication that his advancement and his conquering is actually going to be, it's, it's said, a bloodless victory. In other words, it won't be necessarily through death and violence and destruction as much as it will be through deception and manipulation and trickery, getting these nations to concede to the authority of this group uh, while at the same time, again, meaning harm and destruction. And that is certainly possible. Uh, it's not certain at all, however, and it could just as easily be through destruction. But the overall point, either way, whether it's violent or nonviolent victory, is that of great military success under false pretenses that are specifically designed to mimic Christ by claiming to do what they do by the anointing of God. And by God's special enabling. And so this is the first part of the Lord's judgment. The victories, again, are deceiving victories. Possibly political victories through the strength and the threat of war. They are successes, again, that are connected to divine enabling. Now, we're not going to today, but next week we'll look at how this connects to Daniel chapter 9. But here I want to emphasize this point. The danger of false peace has often been a tool of deceptive leaders to enact control and to gain power. There are many political systems, and just in our own history and history of the world and observations, one that is well-known to us or more well-known is communism. It promises universal provision and fairness, but what it produces is lack and oppression and violence. That's what it always produces. And that's always the intent, ultimately, of its leaders. Again, we could look at many leaders throughout the history and many nations, even in our day, who promise to be working for the good of the people, who promise to be working almost with a divine enablement. You can think of North Korea and others. And yet, their actions are oppression and lack and force and fear. And so we see this. There's always a danger of false peace of false prophets who come in a religious context, particularly we see this in the Old Testament, who often came with a message of peace to the people, to the people of God, but it was in rejection of God's true prophets. And so before the coming day of the Lord, he says as well that there will be the same proclamation in 1 Thessalonians 5.2 of peace and safety, peace and safety. And the reality is that people want to believe this because it presents peace that is easy while ignoring sin and appealing to the flesh in some manner. Even if it's something as simple as you concede this and I'll give you safety. You concede this and I'll give you provision. You concede these rights and I will be the one who is your provider and your protector. And that works extremely well and here connected to the deceiving ministry of Satan himself it is a reminder that he is a deceiver and this is what I want to emphasize that he is a deceiver Satan operates in lies and half truths that are meant for one end and that is to manipulate and to mislead others to destruction that is his trade all the way from the beginning in 2 Corinthians 11.3, you'll remember that he warns the Corinthian church to be careful 
to not be led astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ, to not have their minds led astray as did Eve when Satan deceived her. That he deceived her, he tricked her. John 8, you're well familiar. I'll just mention it here. Is that he is a liar and he's been a liar from the beginning and he's been a murderer from the beginning. And the reality is that this Work of the ultimate enemy of the souls of men, which is Satan himself and the demonic realm, is for that purpose to deceive. And it's already out in the world. John noted earlier in his epistle that the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. It's already in the world. And where is Satan's most effective deception? What did you think? It's in the church. It's in the church. It is among the people of God. Who was Jude writing to? Jude wasn't writing to some distant village within the Roman Empire. He was writing to the church. He was writing to the church. Who was Paul writing to in the Corinthian church? Who was Paul writing to about a twisting of the law and another gospel that does not save? The church in Galatia. Who was Paul writing to throughout in much of the New Testament? Who was Hebrews writing to? A Jewish church giving them warnings throughout. Satan's most active, most uh, egregious activity and aggressive activity is in the church. And it is to deceive so we won't want to be unaware of his schemes. Those in eternal judgment are described as those who are deceived. In Revelation 19, verse 20, let me just read it. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Those who were deceived in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 as well. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So who is going to be following and be sucked in to this supposed righteous work of these false and deceptive leaders? Those who are deceived. Those who are deceived. Those who do not know the truth. Now here's the thing for us to consider. I'd want us to consider. In one sense, those who are deceived do not think they are deceived. In fact, they think that they are the ones who have the truth. That they are the ones who see things as they really are. That they are the ones who are in the right, not in the wrong. That's the nature of deception. If that weren't the case, they wouldn't be deceived. You remember Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived. He knew what he was doing. It was high-handed when he took of the fruit and he ate. No, those who are deceived are deceived. And the very mark of that is they don't think they are deceived, but they think they are in the right. However, in another sense... This doesn't mean that those who are deceived are without excuse. And here's the thing. People are deceived because they want the thing the deception offers. You get that thing? People are deceived because they want the thing that the deception offers to them. And this is what we want to recognize. It's just like sin. Sin is a deceiver because it offers pleasure without consequence. It offers pleasure where the one who enacts in it is in control. When in fact they're not. They're a slave to unrighteousness. And the end is going to lead to death. As a matter of fact, consider another description of those who are outside of God's saving city. The city of God's salvation in Revelation 21. And when it says this, who are there? Who are there? Who are not a part of the new heavens and the new earth? Listen. The cowardly? The unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Those are the ones deceived. Why? Because the deception appealed to them 
and gave them all of those things. So in one sense, the person who is deceived could say, I didn't know I was deceived, and this is true. This is true, that's why they were deceived. But the divine answer to that is you were deceived because you turned away from the truth. Because your desires and your motives and your affections were already set on the wrong things. Now with that in mind, listen to how this is described, speaking also of this end time, this end of the age and the character of it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just listen. He's talking about the lawless one who's going to come. So this is in accord with exactly what is being introduced to us here in the first seal. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and his appearance of his coming. Whose coming, the lawless one, is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. And listen, with all the deception of what? If you're there, verse 10. Of wickedness of those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason... God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but what? Took pleasure in wickedness. Deceived? Yes. False pretenses? Yes. Why? Because the deceived loved wickedness rather than the truth. Turned their ears away from hearing the truth and turned their heart and their affections towards what would satisfy their lust to fill in the blank. And that is precisely what the kingdom of the Antichrist will appeal to. That's what he's doing now, but it will be in a heightened sense of deception that will take place at the end of the age. It will be a deception that only increases in its power. And you'll remember what Jesus said, even referring to the second part of this, to the signs and the wonders and so forth mentioned there, that if possible, even the elect would be deceived, but it's not. But if it were possible, even they, why? Because the deception is so strong. It's so believable. And it's so evil and damning. And so leaders promise peace and prosperity, and that is no doubt the message of this, of this first Group going out, claiming to bring good, claiming to bring peace, claiming to bring prosperity, claiming to bring protection, claiming to do good. In fact, the whole while the intention is evil. It is to destroy and to manipulate. And that's how it is with false teachers as well. Now, as we come in, let me just make this brief application. How can you know How can you know? How do we know when someone is a deceiver? Well, it's actually not that hard in the main. Matthew chapter 7, you're well familiar with this. How do you know? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And most of the people find it. Many enter through it. But the gate is small. The way is narrow that leads to life. Few are those who find it. Because the narrow gate of repentance is only entered in through by those whom the Spirit grants that gift, who want to turn from everything to gain Christ. The way that is broad accepts everyone with very few claims, very few convictions, very few requirements on life. And so people run to it. If you remember in the last days, what did he say? Paul said to Timothy, people will accumulate teachers who want to have their what? Ears tickled, who will appear appeal to their natural fallen nature and lust, not confronted with the truth of who God is. So how do you know? Well, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? No, they're not. So every tree that bears good fruit... But the bad tree bears bad fruit. So you'll know them by the fruit of their lives. You'll know them by what the fruit of their lives and their ministry produces. The kind of things that are evidenced in their character and in their life. The trail that they leave behind is either of that that promotes righteousness and goodness and holiness and humility and love and faith in Christ or something else. 
And so you'll know them by their fruits. That's how you know. Secondly, and these go together, you'll know them by their deviation from Scripture. You know them by their deviation from Scripture. And of course, these go hand in hand. Second Peter chapter 3, many places, we could go back to Jude. But Second Peter chapter 3, and this again is relating to the things of the end of this age. That's the context of first, Second Peter 3, we've read it before. And he says this, that some things of Paul are, are hard to understand. He speaks in them of these things, that is, these things that are to come upon the end of the age, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as, do the rest, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So you know by the fruit of the life, and you know by their handling of scripture, if it is faithful, and if it is true, or if it is not. And so then how can we be protected? Well, it's rather simple then. It's the opposite of that. It's to know the truth about Christ in Scripture. And if the truth about Christ in the Word of God never confronts who you are, if it doesn't dismantle your pride, if it doesn't expose your sin and the thoughts and the intentions of your heart, if it doesn't lead you to realize that the only hope of righteousness you have is in Christ and God's accomplishment of righteousness in Him, then it's not an accurate understanding and you just want to have your ears tickled. If you want to play religion to make you feel like a good person, and if people want that, to make you feel just encouraged with life without ever challenging you to change your ways and to follow Christ, then it is not according to Scripture. It's not the Christ of a Scripture. It's of the invention of men. And so the Word of God tears down and it builds up. The Word of God destroys us and everything of human pride and fills us with the joy of focusing our gaze on Christ and whom is our highest joy and delight. That is the effect of the Word of God. It teaches us wisdom rather than foolishness. It renews our mind, which means it constantly corrects our thinking and shows us where we're wrong and we need to think in a right way and we need to think more in line with the mind of Christ. And so we evaluate it that way. So if that is your goal, if you are submitting yourself to the Word of God, if you are reading Scripture, if you are submitting your life to if it is correcting you, if it is pointing you to Christ, if it is making you decrease and Christ increase in your heart, that's a good, safe way to not be deceived. And if you're obeying it and your life is being conformed to the truth of the Gospel... So I trust that that's most of us in here, but we do have to always remember it's not everybody. So there is, among and in the hearing of these words, some whom that is not true. And so the prayer would be that you would honestly evaluate your life. And in evaluating your life, know that you're making the decision that this is the truth or it's not. And so that's between you and the Lord, and we pray that you would evaluate it properly and that any who are outside of Christ would come to a saving knowledge of him as us who now come to the table to celebrate all that Christ is and all that he has done for us having rescued us from the dominion of darkness the authority of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his great and his beloved son so let's pray or I'll pray the men will hand out the elements and then we will together take the table together Father, we thank you for your word because your word has not left us uninformed. We by ourselves are ignorant and foolish and full of darkness. We are limited in our sight, our capacities. We are but temporary passing creatures who are like the glory of the grass that will wither and fade and move on. But your word is the eternal word. Your word does not fail. It does not fade. But it stands always before us as the truth, as the truth from our Creator and the truth of the one who is willing to be our Redeemer and has accomplished everything necessary to that end in Christ. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. May we grow in our love for it. May you increase our discernment. May you increase our love for Christ and one another. And Lord, we do pray that for any who are here who do not know you, that they would consider their condition in turn and trust in you. And remind us of these great and glorious truths symbolized in these elements now. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.